Hey y'all, I'm JV, aka Mixter Hyde from the In The Mix podcast. And uh, I wanted to tell y'all a little story that I heard from out in Maryland. So peep this, way back in the day, there was this nice old lady nurse named Aggie. Everybody loved her, but this being olden times, them ones that she was caring for uh, would have a tendency to uh, to die, you know. Now, I know what y'all thinking, because I thought this too. We've seen Typhoid Mary, we've seen Jane Toppin, we sort of know how this goes. She's probably been killing him, right? <laughs> nah, girl, slow down, true crime fanatics. She was actually just an innocent, nice old lady. But the courts were like, nah, she mad guilty and they executed her. But here's the thing, though. She was fully innocent. She was found to be innocent the day after they killed her. As our girl Sam would say, that'll make a ghost. So, everybody is all upset talking about, we made a huge mistake. Oh my god, we so sorry. So they put up a statue in her honor at Druid Ridge Cemetery in Baltimore, But the gag is, our girl Aggie was haunting the hell out that statue. So people have been found dead in front of the statue. People have been struck blind while looking at our statue of our girl in the eye at midnight. Like idiots, though. But whatever. And uh, women been having sudden miscarriages out of nowhere. Well, not really out of nowhere. Sort of caused by hauntings. Basically, Aggie went from being a caretaker to a life taker. Now word on the street also is that they took it down so if you were to go there right now you wouldn't find it but they took it down and they brought it to a museum in baltimore where it ain't never been displayed and it just sits in the basement moral of the story though two things one don't make no ghosts and there won't be no problems and two uh girl pro tip in general don't be looking into statues eyes at midnight i don't know about you but I like to be able to see. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This. They start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back everyone. We are so glad you could all make it on this fine whenever you're listening to us. It is a lovely slash terrible day out there and we are hoping that you are in safe and sound or out enjoying that beautiful weather wherever you may be. This is a one size fits all intro, but you know what's always true? Even if I can't predict the weather, I can tell you that you are the most fabulous of all fabulous listeners, and we are very lucky and happy to have you. We sure are. And we are happy for all of you that come and listen to us every week and let us know what you like about the show or give us suggestions on topics. And you can do that through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. You can check out our website to find out more stuff about the show, such as sources for all the episodes, JustaStoryPod.com. And there you can find links to our merch store, which it's getting to be about time to put up a new shirt. So if you have any requests, any special ideas, any episode artwork that you've particularly loved, or any of our crazy characters that we've come up with or talked about that you would like to see on a shirt, you can let us know, and maybe we'll make that happen. 
And you can also, on the site, find links to our Patreon page, which is another way to help us make this show that you're listening to right now. And through helping us, through your financial donations, you can get access to extra episodes or other fun prizes. Yay, prizes. Everyone loves prizes. That's why Chuck E. Cheese is still a thing. That and robotic rodents playing rock and roll. All the things people like. And pizza. We have a new patron. Robin of Loxley Walford. Close. Loxley Walford. Yes. Okay. Thanks, Loxley. And there's another way you can reach out to the show, and that's on the Urban Legend Hotline. The number for the Urban Legend Hotline is 512-222-3375. And by dialing that number, you are contacting us to make voice sounds on a recording. That's your whole plan. And when you do that, you can say anything you like. Nothing profane. Okay, a little profane's okay, but you can tell us your favorite urban legend, you can tell us a joke, you can tell us a scary story, you can tell us about that one time, that one thing happened with that guy, yeah. No, stop. (laughs) Deep dark secrets are encouraged and accepted. So Sam, back to the story at hand. Speaking of deep dark secrets. Well, this story is an urban legend that's been around for a while, and it has been suggested many a time to us, and we always said... What's the point? I don't get it. How are we going to do a episode on a statue? Yeah, we said that. We said that for a long time. And then... Then a funny thing happened on the way to the Smithsonian. We saw it. We saw it. <laughs> and you can say, inspiration struck as I cowered in fear. Jacob would not interact with a statue. It's a freaky statue. It is a freaky statue. And I was like, come feel the power. And he's like, I'm good. Like literally what he said. <laughs> I'm good. As he went into the room of Rococo art, and I was like, wow, he must really hate it. Because <laughs> I really hate Rococo art. <laughs> so we were forced, if you will, to encounter one of the most terrifying statues I have ever seen. I'm, I have always appreciated sculpture a great deal, but I'm not necessarily drawn to it. In a room full of paintings and sculpture, I tend to go more toward paintings. This one commands your attention. It's a seated figure draped in a simple cloak. One of its arms is raised near its face and it has a very passive, peaceful, tranquil expression, but it hints at something very dark. It does. It's a very haunting, haunting statue. And so the Black Aggie statue is was originally in the Rockford Cemetery in Maryland outside of Baltimore. Okay. And it has many, many a fantastic urban legend tied to it. So that's what we're going to talk about this episode is Black Aggie? Kind of. Okay. So some of the things go, anyone who spends the night lying in the statue's lap. Why would you do that? Will either die of fright, be squeezed to death by the statue's arms, and then dragged down to hell, or be haunted for eternity by the ghosts of those buried in the cemetery. So why would you do that? Well, you're a frat bro. I thought that that just meant you put vodka in your butt. Different urban legend. Okay, so you're a frat bro. Hazing is what you're telling me. Yeah, initiation. Yeah, definitely. Okay, ritual dare. Only reason I would go lay in that thing's lap. Although, I don't think it would drag me to hell. Why is that? I don't think it would drag me to hell. I don't think that it exists on any other plane. I think it is completely, its existence is completely encapsulated in that space between viewer and subject. Well, many a legend and frat boy would disagree with you. And I would disagree right back with them. Go make me a sandwich. You're going to be so hungry. (laughs) 
But there are many, you know, anecdotal reports of cemetery workers arriving at the cemetery in the morning to find lifeless corpses of poor fraternity boys resting in the arms and embrace of Black Aggie. I feel like there would be a public service announcement about that if that had happened. Well, they would lock it up. You know, people would sneak in. Was it like the ones where the stat, like where the cage actually goes around the statue? No, they'd lock the cemetery. The cemetery. That you've seen the ones where they actually put the cage mm-hmm. around the statue that would keep people from messing with it. It's also said that if you put your ear up to her, you can hear the heartbeat, or you can hear terrible screams, or <laughs> you can hear clanking chains. So it's like a seashell. It's like a creepy, creepy seashell. It's a hell shell. Yes shell from hell they also said the spirits of the dead would rise from their graves on dark nights to gather around the statue and do what i don't know cocktails yeah and also there is tale that it becomes animated at night whether that's its eyes glowing red or it actually moving and getting up from its pedestal and doing what going after people (laughs) killing people it was a boogeyman to people in baltimore like, kids wouldn't want to say her name, or they wouldn't, you know, say it three times in the dark or whatever. Parents would warn their children if they weren't good, Black Aggie would come after them. I can see that. So some locals believe the statue was actually erected to commemorate the death of a girl who was raped. To death? I guess. God. At the same time. And that any virgin who sits in its lap will lose their virginity in 24 hours. Not from the statue. Not that I read. Or that if you're pregnant... You'll have a miscarriage. There's these kind of themes about vengeance against children and pregnant women. It's really odd. There's another theory that it was cursed after a brutal husband murdered his wife and buried her under the statue. Unauthorized burial, I'm assuming. Right. He just went and hid her body there. What better place? Um, okay, so lots of violence against women themes and frat boys. So we don't like frat boys. Or women. Or women. Or virgins. Okay. Or basically anyone that touches her. Or says her name. Got it. Vengeful bitch is what we're talking about here. Right. So this is a legend of a statue coming to life, either cursed or seeking some sort of vengeance. And oddly enough, there are a lot of urban legends about statues coming to life. Well... Lucky for us, I have a little bit of writing about statues in general from C. Lewis Hind writing around the turn of the last century. There is little to choose between England and America. England has her terrible monument crowded in Westminster Abbey. America has her awful effigies of chosen sons crowding one another in the National Hall of Statuary in the Capitol. We have our exorable Achilles in Hyde Park and our eyesores of Stevenson on Euston Road and Cobden in Kentish Town and even the monument to Queen Victoria in High Street, Kensington, at which even the drivers of the omnibuses jeer. You have your mm, but as a guest I must be courteous. I would gild my criticism in the form of interrogation. Has any American citizen ever derived one instant pleasure or encouragement from, say, the Horace Greeley planted in the Tribune building, or the frock-coated Roscoe Conkling in Madison Square, or Washington Irving in Bryant Park, or the full-size cast of Michelangelo's egregious David in the park adjoining the Albright Gallery in Buffalo? When a classical model is borrowed, it should be chosen from the master's highest achievement. 
tell us how you really feel. Oh, he is mincing all of his words. He's mincing something. Mincing gate, like Hoover. Anyway, the American Society for the Fine Arts, which is about to extend its sphere of influence, should agitate for a law to the effect that no public monument shall be erected in honor of the dead, which does not minister to the pleasure of the living. And so he mentions Statuary Hall in the Capitol. And now the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., is quite a haunted place. Oh, yes. How could it not be? Right. James Beard compiled a book, The Capital Inside and Out, looking at these kind of ghost stories. He said the building got off to a bad start in 1808 when the construction superintendent, John Linthal, disagreed with the architect B. Henry Latrobe over the vaulting in the room now known as the old Supreme Court chambers. When Linthal tried to remove braces from the vaults, the ceiling collapsed and crushed him. In the last breath, legend goes... Linthal put a curse on the building. Well, that would explain some things. That would make a few ghosts. Well, maybe a few ghosts. I was just saying, like, it does seem cursed. I bet it was built on an ancient Indian burial ground. Or the backs of slaves, whatever. Or all of the above. So, again, in 1848, when John Quincy Adams, who was elected to the House after he was president. Only person to ever do that, by the way. Just could not get enough of serving his country. You could say it was in his blood. Well, I mean, Taft became a Supreme Court justice. Right, but that's... Almost a promotion? It's a lifetime appointment. Depends on who you ask. Now, he was speaking in the old house chambers, giving a speech on the Mexican War when he had a stroke. And people say he died right then and there, but... He died two days later. He definitely started dying there. (laughs) But he died in a room off of the floor, so he was still in the building. Oh, Oh, I assumed they brought him out to a hospital. Silly me. Silly you. What would a hospital do? Poke him, dig around, Back look then, for the bullet. Not much. Since then, capital workers have reported hearing Adam's footsteps or the specter of the old president and congressman trying to finish his speech. Well, and interestingly, his desk is prime whisper spot location. Yes, it is. So the room was constructed using designs from old Greco-Roman architecture in order to amplify sound from the speaker's chair. And so, in theory, from the speaker's chair, you should be able to hear at any point in the room anything he says, even at a whisper. And you can. And it's eerie. But because of the acoustics, people often think they're hearing John Quincy Adams speak when they're in that spot. Maybe they are. Sure. Now the old house chamber is used as a statuary hall. Right. And in the beginning, it was the statuary hall. Now, the new construction for the house chambers was completed in 1857. And as they were preparing to move to their new digs, they did what Congress people do, and they began debating what they should do with the old chamber. And this was a fierce debate, and it broke out three years before they actually moved. I'm not surprised. Now, there was a former House member named Governor Kimball. What state was he the governor of? His mom was just uppity. <laughs> now, he suggested that they use the room to showcase historical paintings, which was all well and good, but you could put a few paintings on the walls, and there's really not much more you could do. So, naturally, three-dimensional art was considered. And so, on April 19th of 1864, Justin S. Morrill, a representative, asked, To what end more useful or grand, and at the same time simple and inexpensive, he was a congressman, can we devote it, the chamber, then to ordain that it shall be set apart for the reception 
of such statuary as each state shall elect to be deserving of this lasting commemoration. And his proposal became law, creating the National Statuary Hall on July 2nd, 1864. The president authorized and invited each state to send two statues, not exceeding two, of a deceased person who has been a citizen of the state and illustrious for their historic renown or for distinguished civic or military services, such as each state may deem to be worthy of this national commemoration. Now, this was a great plan. Was it? But it was a small room. It's very crowded even now. Right. So in 1933, there were 65 statues in Statuary Hall, and they were stacked three deep. And this was just too much, they decided. And it was literally putting a great deal of weight on the structure itself. Now... We're going to get another collapse. Yes. And they were like, we shouldn't make more ghosts if we can help it. That's not recommended. And so they needed to be spread out. And they were moved to the reception area and the crypt, which is creepy, and the column room and several different locations throughout the Capitol. 38 remain in the chamber, and it does still feel quite crowded. And there's also, in addition to the hundred statues that make up the collection, a statue of Rosa Parks. She was the first African-American woman to be honored in this way. But she's not a gift of any state. Congress just liked her. Cool. And she's seated. But her statue was unveiled on February 27th of 2013. Out of the 100 statues making up the population of Statuary Hall. There are nine women, one Native Hawaiian, five Native Americans, one Hispanic man, and one man who was born in Spain. But there are also eight Confederates. At least women are beating one group out. Well, and to be fair, uh, Alabama changed theirs out. Florida is about to change theirs out. And King Kamehameha is amazing. It's the classic bronze statue, but he has gold robes on. He's Kamei amazing. So true. Hashtag. <laughs> Kamei amazing. <laughs> so it's not the most diverse population. And I have to say, some of those women and Native Americans are doing double duty there. So if you didn't know, we recently went to D.C. And so we personally witnessed Statuary Hall. Unfortunately, we didn't witness the legend that goes with it. Well, we went at the wrong time of the year, silly. And at the wrong time of day. Because supposedly... At midnight on New Year's Eve, the statues come alive to celebrate another year of the Great Republic. Now you may say, where the hell did this idea come from? It's actually an old legend. Supposedly a Capitol Guard in the 1890s first reported this. Now John Alexander wrote in his book, Ghost of Washington Revisited, it seems that the Guard began to develop considerable apprehension as various statues were added to the hall. The lifelike figures seemed too lifelike. He confided to colleagues that he was uncomfortable around them. He didn't like working nights. One night as he approached the hall, he stopped dead in his tracks. In the distance, a clock was striking twelve. And down the corridor, in the room, washed with soft, flickering light. He clearly saw silhouettes float down off pedestals. The guard opened his mouth but could not scream. He rubbed his eyes, but the vision was still there. There in Statuary Hall, in the stillness of a New Year's midnight, the guard looked upon a scene like none he had ever witnessed before. The statues were coming to life and were dancing. Quivering with fright, the guard fled the Capitol. Well, there are only nine women today, so I have to assume there was interesting pairing. <laughs> hey, statues may be open-minded. Maybe more open-minded than their real-life counterparts. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> and also it's said that the statues of 
President Grant, or General Grant, and General Lee are seen shaking hands. Okay, so Robert E. Lee was clearly not as much of a dick as some people, but like Jefferson Davis is one of the statues. I'm not yeah. letting this go. I'm not letting Jefferson Davis go. Come on. So nowadays, no current guards fess up to any of this, of course. But Steve Livingood, the public programs director and chief guide for the Capitol Historical Society, suggests that the statue story could have been a result of police drunkenness. Capitol Police at the time were not professional. They were patronage employees. Some failed family member of a congressman. Oh, God. You know, that's just an elite group right there. Oh, you know it. So, you know, they may have had a little uh, liquid courage to go along with their solo nightly gig. You think they just went and got Ralph from the tavern and like had him go prop his boots up on the desk or something? Cousin Ralph. Cousin Ralph. Sorry. Now, this is great. One historian states there may be a reason we don't see the dancing statues anymore. At the turn of the century... Illinois added a new statue of suffragette and prohibitionist Frances Willard. She sounds like a party. Her statue has her blouse buttoned up to her chin. She never would have allowed dancing. They could have danced up until the point, but since it was invariably been the result of drinking, she would have stopped it. Maybe, maybe, it's just my guess. The guards might be a little more professional now. Or they got rid of the candlelight, right? Because that would make them look like they're moving. And the booze. Candlelight and booze is, you know, makes magic happen. But my thought is maybe since they spread them out, the rabble rousers are all quartered in different areas of the capital now. And they can't, like, come together in cahoots. Or maybe they are coming together so they can. They'd have to walk upstairs. I just can't see it. Hey, the Statue of Liberty walked in Ghostbusters 2. If that can happen which I'm pretty sure it's like a documentary, this could happen. Well, David Copperfield also made her disappear, so she just wanders all over the place. Now, there are also legends about college statues, especially when it comes to virgins passing in front of them. There are many, many, many tales like this. So Silent Sam is the bronze soldier who stands on the University of North Carolina campus, and he is a memorial to the UNC alumni who died fighting for the Confederacy in the Civil War. And according to legend... If a virgin passes by the soldier, he will shoot his rifle, hence his nickname, Silent Sam. So he's never shot his gun because he never sees a virgin? Yeah, that's the joke. It's cute. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah. I like what you did there, UNC. So Testudo of the University of Maryland will rise from his pedestal during commencement and fly over the crowd if a virgin ever graduates from that school. The seated pioneer mother of the University of Oregon and the seated Lincoln of the University of Illinois will stand in a virgin's presence, while at Michigan State, the standing Spartan will sit. (laughs) So these are basically just jokes about virgins. Yeah. You know, it's not tied to magical virgin powers and touching unicorns or anything like that. It's just just kind of a joke. (laughs) (laughs) So don't worry, we're not getting into that again. All right, moving on from colleges. We've graduated. So another classic tale of a statue coming to life is from Ovid's Metamorphosis, way back in the day in Greek and Roman times. One man, Pygmalion, who has seen these women leading their lives, shocked at the vices. Nature has given the female disposition only too often, chose to live alone, to have no woman in his bed. But meanwhile, he made with marvelous art an ivory statue as white as snow and gave it greater beauty than any girl could have and fell in love. Oh, this could be a monkey's paw. This could be a monkey's paw. 
Shockingly, it's not. Oh. So Aphrodite's festival day came, and Pygmalion made an offering at the altar of Aphrodite. And he was too scared to admit his desire, but he quietly wished for a bride who would be the living likeness of my ivory girl. When he returned home, he kissed his ivory statue and laid down by its side as he normally did. Uh-huh, this is larger than the real girl. Yeah, it kind of is. Aphrodite was impressed by Pygmalion's devotion and decided to help him. So at dawn of the next morning, while Pygmalion was sleeping by the statue, mm-hmm. the goddess entered his studio and embraced the marble beauty. Mm-hmm. Pygmalion woke up and he kissed his ivory girl and she seemed to glow and he kissed her again and he stroked her breast and felt the ivory soften under his fingers as wax grows soft in sunshine made pliable by handling. And Pygmalion wonders and doubts as dubious and happy plays lover again and over and over touches the body with his hand. It is a body. So she comes to life and they fall madly in love. Yeah, and they have a baby nine months later. The end. I feel like this is perpetuating an unhealthy set of expectations. But why? Yes, it's better to create your own woman than go find one. Larson the Real Girl was good. Yeah, but he ended up thinking she died. Well, spoilers. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Different ending. More tragicomic. So the idea of the statues coming to life is an ancient one. As we've seen and as we'll continue to see, it's one that has continued and been perpetuated in the last century or so. Mostly by Doctor Who. Well, those are just creepy. (laughs) Weeping angel statues are pretty much the stuff of nightmares. But I've got a story from New Orleans. Wonderful. Yay. So there's a memorial in the Metairie Cemetery called the Flaming Tomb. And it belongs to one... Josie Arlington. Now, Josie was a famous Storyville madam. Now, Storyville is like the red light district of New Orleans. It was officially sanctioned as such. And it operated from 1897 to 1917. It was conceived by an alderman, Sidney Story. So it's actually named after someone, a lucky fella, and closed by the United States Naval Department. See, I always assumed it was called Storyville for... Because of the the stories. stories. Yeah. Yeah. Shows what I know. Now, Josie made the most of the opportunity to operate a luxury brothel in the red light district. She bought a four-story mansion with numerous bay windows and a tulip dome copula, fireplaces in most rooms, and according to Josie's advertising, the work of great artists from Europe and America and many articles from various expositions. She employed around 10 to 20 women and two times that many around Mardi Gras. Of course she did. Arlington was the name of the brothel as well as her last name, and it was reputed to be the most decorative and costly fitted out sporting palace ever placed before the American public. This was a high class establishment. Of course. And it catered to the eccentricities, specialties, and kinks of taste. She included circuses. I want to go. With live sex acts publicly hmm. performed. Okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> and specialists for fetishist and sadomasochist. And you could probably get away with whatever you wanted in Arlington. Murder. Nah, yeah, actually. Probably. Actually. We'll Not get today. there. We'll get there. That's another episode. <laughs> she was known as the snootiest madam in America. And she had a private residence on Esplanade. Which makes me wonder if New Orleans Lady is about her. One can only hope. But the elegant atmosphere of the Arlington was quite a departure from her rather humble beginnings. She was actually born Mary Anna Dubler in 1864. She was orphaned and placed in St. Elizabeth's home under the guidance of the Sisters of Charity. 
And you can see their influence, right? <laughs> she might be rebelling against that I made a skosh. Now, she was in the orphanage with the nuns until she met Philip Lebrano when she was a teenager. He sounds like a bad influence. He was indeed a did bad he, influence. Did he wear a leather jacket and have a convertible? Yeah, definitely. Now, he introduced her to the ways of ladies of the night, and the two operated a bordello together. And she remained his lover for about nine years until one day, Phil lost his cool. And after a brief bout of fisticuffs with her brother, he shot poor Peter Dubler right in his heart, right in their parlor of oh, their bordello. No. He was acquitted. Okay. I'm sure there was no money greasing palms there. It took two times. Took two trials to do that. But he did have been... Took two visits yeah. to the brothel? Well, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it was a different kind of greasing. All right. But Josie decided it was best to sever ties with the hot-headed Lebrano. Now, throughout her life, she used a range of aliases, including Josephine, Josie, Arlington, Josie Alton, Lebrano de Arlington, Josie Lebrano, and others. But it was definitely time to rebrand, she decided. And she wanted to kind of amend her earlier reputation. She had already bitten the lips and the ears off a fellow prostitute by this point. Holy shit. She was feisty. She's feisty. So she decided she was going to make good and open the Arlington. She had a few specific rules for the girls that she employed. She would not allow virgins to work for her. Because then the statues would move. (laughs) Obvs. And she charged an arm and a leg for services. Literally? Maybe. Ear and a lips. No. But in 1905, the Arlington burned down. And Josie moved across down Basin Street to the rooms above Tom Anderson's saloon. And this has been called the Arlington Annex ever after. And he became one of Josie's closest friends. And when she retired, he took over the business. So Tom made good. But Josie never really regained her former brazenness, her former feistiness after the fire. And some people believe that at that time she became obsessed with the idea of death. So how's that going to play out? Well, she purchased lot 2000 in the Metairie Cemetery and paid $8,000 for her mausoleum and the statue which accompanies it. So the old Metairie Cemetery is one of those famous New Orleans cemeteries with the above ground vaults, the mausoleums, the statues. They call it the City of the Dead. Yes. Because they look like little houses. It looks like you could go just knock on a door, which is actually, oddly enough, what her statue is doing. Really? What do you mean? Well, there's a statue of a woman approaching the door with flowers in her hand with her back turned to all the other tombs. Turning her back on everyone else. Maybe so. Now, in addition to this bronze statue that's forever moving toward the tomb, there are also two carved marble urns on either side of the front face of the mausoleum. And they have carved marble flames, which I think is an interesting choice considering the trauma that the fire represented in her life. I know, and you know she was involved in designing it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was just like a turning point in her life. Maybe she did it. I'm going to burn this shit down. I can see it. I can see it. It was designed by an architect named Albert Weeblin. And she died on February 14th. That's Valentine's Day if you're keeping track. Sweet. Of 1914. And was placed within her very expensive new residence. But within a decade, her family had gone through all of the inheritance. And rent and upkeep were not on their priority list. So they moved her body to another location. Others speculate it was the series of rumors that surfaced about the tomb itself 
that caused the family to move her body to an undisclosed location. Hmm. Reports surfaced that the matching urns were seen to light up with flames, real flames. In the dead of night? In the dead of night. Only under the new moon? No, actually there was a red light literally hanging. Ruined the fun. But it continued after the red light was taken down. Hmm. Hmm. Some people claim to see the statue crack from its frozen position and begin banging angrily at the door of the tomb, demanding entrance. Now, some people say, lots of people say about this one, that the statue is actually possessed by the spirits of the virgins that were turned away from the Arlington. Who knew we were going to be saying the word virgin so much in an episode about statues? Virgin, virgin, virgin. <laughs> but other people speculate that it's actually Josie herself being turned away from her father's house. Personally, knowing that she's not in that a very expensive mausoleum that she paid for, I think she's probably like, bitches, y'all let me in. <laughs> or also, I mean, she always wanted to be accepted, accepted by society. And I think that the statue depicts that. She's turning her back on everyone. Mm-hmm. Which she could be turning her back on everyone and going through her own door, saying, screw you. I bought this damn door myself and I'll go through it when I damn well please. Yes. Or she could be kind of turning her back on her former lives and going into it. You know, you could see it either way. But the statue doesn't just knock. Really? There were two cemetery grave diggers named Mr. Todkins and Mr. Anthony who swore that they witnessed the statue leaving her post and moving around the tombs. They even claimed to follow her one night only to suddenly see her disappear. It's a good story. Yeah, so another statue, another memorial statue coming to life, possibly righting past wrongs. Possibly indignant over the treatment of her body. No. In this life and the next. (laughs) Right? But this is not something that is only in New Orleans and only with Black Aggie. This is a common, common legend. Right. There's another legend about a monument that refuses to stay put that is centered in Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. Which is another older cemetery with lots of these memorials built up. Right. Very uh, mourning art period we're going through here as a nation. Definitely so. So this is a monument to Inez Clark. Now legend has it that there was a six-year-old girl named Inez Clark who was struck by lightning in 1880. It's tragic. A terrible thunderstorm broke out while she was on a picnic with her family, and she was struck and died before her parents' eyes. Naturally, they were devastated. Who wouldn't be? They had a life-size statue made in her likeness, and it depicts a little girl sitting on a wooden chair with a subtle smile on her face, holding an umbrella. It's a beautiful statue. Well, I just think the umbrella's a little on the nose. I would not have put a motherfucking umbrella. (laughs) I see your point. The legend continues that this little girl, Inez, is still afraid of thunderstorms. And on nights when there's lightning or thunder, the glass case that surrounds and protects her statue will be found empty. That glass case around the statue just makes it ten times creepier. It's like they're trying to keep her in. Like, I know it's probably to try to keep people away from it, from... Like vandalizing. vandalizing it but it looks like, with the legends, that it's it's keeping her in place. Ah. Yeah, you're right. Now, there is a story involving an old night watchman. He swore that he'd been out walking in a thunderstorm, patrolling his charged area, 
and he came to the grave of Inez Clark and found the glass case empty. Oh, no. The statue inside was gone. And though the watchman never returned to the cemetery, Inez's statue did. In the morning, when the sun rose, it was back in its case. Now, there are other reports of people hearing little girls cry or seeing a girl in period clothing dancing through the tombstones. But the thing about Inez Clark, and this is an important thing in my opinion, is that she may never have existed. So what? So there's no Inez Clark buried at Graceland Cemetery. But it says it on the monument, says Inez Clark. And according to an expert, Al Volovich, who works for the Chicago Sun-Times, there may never have been an Inez Clark at all. He's gone through census records, etc., and never turned up an Inez Clark. And he says, based on cemetery records, there's no such person buried in that grave. Volovich also found a letter dated 1910 from a woman who is supposed to have been Inez's mother. It stated that the Clarks had two daughters and both of them were very much alive. But the most damning evidence against the existence of Inez Clark ever is this correspondence between the supposed mother and the cemetery itself. They had no idea who Inez might be, but noted that it was a lovely statue. Cemetery records show that there's actually an eight-year-old boy named Amos Briggs buried in that plot. So wait, what the hell? Why is there this statue there? Just to be creepy. No, I'm kidding. I'd buy it. So people think that it was an advertisement for a monument maker. Okay. Named Andrew Gage, and that he completed the statue in 1881. And he just put it in a busy part of the cemetery to try to attract business. And then never took it down. Good idea, bro. <laughs> but this anonymous statue that sits in the middle of the graveyard has sparked much curiosity and its own lore. Now, interestingly, it is in the same cemetery as Eternal Silence. That's a statue that definitely has some resemblance to Black Aggie. Absolutely, but it's standing and it looks more menacing. It's this cloaked, menacing figure. You can only see its eyes peeking out. Holds its arm up, shielding its face. Mm, very, like very it. creepy. Like Originally, it. it was black. Right, it was painted. Uh, now, it was constructed for Dexter Graves, and he was one of the early founders of Chicago. His family was, at least. He was a hotel owner and businessman, and the work was done by Laredo Taft, who also did The Fountain of Time in Chicago, which is a really beautiful piece. But it was made of concrete and it wore away and they had to like go back and reconstruct it. But it looks great now. They were like, concrete will stand the test of time. Just watch. But it's as good as marble. Not so much. It didn't stand the test of, of, of time. Time. Yeah. Time. Father time wore it away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Father Irony also worked on that one. Interesting note about the Graves family. During the Civil War, their property was in the middle of a prisoner of war camp. Why would you ever do that? Did they run it or? No, they just wouldn't move. Oh, okay. And so for years, people would look at the maps and they thought that the thing labeled graves was the cemetery. But it was their homestead. It was their homestead. But that one, the legend surrounding eternal silence, which locals just call death. It fair, looks like it. I fair. It. Is if you look into its face, you will see your own death. No. But apparently it stays put. That's what you think. Why don't you go see what it does at midnight on New Year's Eve? It's going to be dancing. With Inez. Yes. Don't you know he has interesting socks under his cloak? Oh, he's wearing seersucker. Like our priest. Oh. So 
lots of creepy statues, especially memorial statues. Mm -hmm. And at this time, this kind of turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, the ideas of mourning and how one commemorates the death of someone were changing. Right, because Queen Victoria was a badass bitch. And everybody's like, she looks good in black, girl. I'm doing that shit, too. And so these kind of memorial monuments at family plots became very, very popular. And you can see this in any of these great cemeteries, such as Rockwood or Graceland or in the old Metairie Cemetery. Now, we may say great cemeteries because we're from the South and we apologize about that, but we're real comfortable with that down here. I'm apologizing for it. Yeah, we're, it's just very much ingrained in us that you, you do cemeteries like you do church. But it begs the question, who placed this creepy evil statue in the cemetery in Maryland? The rapey statue, the miscarriage statue, the frat boy killing statue. Yes, who would do such a thing? <laughs> Why would you do that? And so his name was Felix Agnes. Aggie? Yes. Under the statue is the family name Agnes. Hence the name. Got it. So Felix was born in France, and he left college and became a seaman. He traveled around the world on the high seas. And Sounds like a swashbuckler. Yeah, he returned to France, he trained as a sculptor. Cool. Then abandoned that to become a soldier in the Austrian War. He's like... Enough of this art shit. I'm going to follow my dream. (laughs) Right. He then immigrated to the United States, where he worked briefly as a jeweler for Tiffany and Company. I've heard of them. Before volunteering for service in the cause of the Union. Like, he really just could not get enough of the soldiery shit. He was like, art, soldier, art, soldier. I'm so torn. So he entered the Union Army as a sergeant and left four years later as the Brevet Brigadier General. Good for him. Supposedly, his body was so full of shrapnel that he jingled while he walked. I love it. And now he was twice wounded, and he spent one of his convalescent periods in the Baltimore newspaper publisher, Charles C. Fulton's home. And there, his nurse was Annie, Fulton's daughter, whom he later married. Well, that's kind of a meet-cute. Sure. And so when his father-in-law died, Agnes became publisher of the Baltimore American and then launched the evening Baltimore Star. So he had all this money. (laughs) And nothing to do with it. And while he was a soldier by shrapnel, he was an artist at heart. I like it. So he wanted to create a memorial at his family's plot. Fortuitously, a dealer shows up, John Salter and Son Company, and they say they have the rights to this beautiful statue. That they can sell them for $3,900. Oh, it sounds like a bargain. Practically a song. And he accepts, and it is installed in 1907. He shipped his mother's body over from France and (laughs) buried her under it. And General Agnes died on Halloween of 1925 and was buried in the family plot. Now you might be asking yourself, wait, wait, this is a copy? There's more than one of these things in the world? No. It's true. And so this particular sculpture was a ripoff. Wah, wah. Right? It was done by Edward Posh, who is actually better known for doing President McKinley's death mask. That would be the man who furnished us that fabulous Cuban-American war. Thanks. And this copy was a non-authorized copy. So what did he do? Did he just like cast the statue when no one was looking or like how does one unauthorized copy a statue he just studied it 
and made a copy of it. But looking at the details, one smarter than I can determine that it is not just a cast, but a copy, like a ripoff of it. Oh my gosh. It's a Golche and Dabana purse is what it is. You can get on the street corner. <laughs> hey man, you need a purse? Well, it's impressive one. that he copied it, right? Well, he's, he's a great sculptor, but... No one knows if Posh was in on the deal or if he was just hired and just trying to you know, pay his bills. You know, what it was. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But the sculpture that is that was in Rock Creek Cemetery is no longer there. It was removed due to these urban legends. Due to the not just the fear it caused, but the vandalism. It inspired. Let's use inspired. Yes. That went on with it. Including even one episode where they cut off its hand. That was the final straw. Yeah, they were like, we're done with this. And they removed it. Now the pedestal is still there. Uh Uh-uh. That says Agnes. Uh Uh-uh. Over the gravesite, looking like Black Aggie just stood up and walked away. Now you may be asking, what is this a ripoff of? What is this an unauthorized copy of? So Black Aggie is an unauthorized copy of a very famous sculpture. And this is actually the one we ran into. Yes. In Washington, D.C., known as the Adams Memorial. So when you see Adams Memorial and you're in Washington, D.C., naturally one thinks John Adams Memorial, John Quincy Adams Memorial. And you would be wrong. Ish. Ish. (laughs) So it is located in the Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. And so it is a memorial statue. Now, in December of 1885... Henry Brooks Adams, the great-great-grandson of John Adams, was going to go out of his home on Lafayette Square across from the White House and head over to go see the dentist. Because he had a toothache. He ran into an acquaintance as he was leaving and went back upstairs, who was only out of the home for just a moment, to see if his wife was going to accept the visitor. Now he called out for his wife, Marion Hooper Adams. But what did he call her? Clover. Lovely. So he called out for Clover, got no response, began to look around for her in their home, and he couldn't find her. He eventually went upstairs. He found her slumped over on the rug in front of the fireplace. He carried his wife to his sofa, then ran for a doctor. Dr. Charles Hagner arrived. They found a vial of potassium cyanide lying by her. The strange smell confirmed it. And Dr. Hagner declared her dead. Clover Adams committed suicide by swallowing potassium cyanide on December 6th of 1885, 42 years old, at her home on 8th Street in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. Now, the Capitol was stunned by the news. Washington newspapers reported that she had suddenly dropped dead from paralysis of the heart. Now, Marion Adams, or Clover, was a fascinating, fascinating woman. She was indeed. She was an amateur photographer. And that's why she had the potassium cyanide. Yes, because she developed her own photos, and that was one of the chemicals required to develop her photos. She was raised in Boston among the elites, and she was a very free spirit. She was born September 13th of 1843 in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, her father, Dr. William Hooper, was an eye doctor, and her mother, Ellen Sturgis Hooper, was a transcendentalist and poetess. Fantastic. But she died of tuberculosis when Clover was only five years old. Now, she grew up with her father and her brother and sister, just the three of them. 
However, she remembered growing up, sitting around the fires with Ralph Waldo Emerson, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Henry David Thoreau. That's a hell of a pedigree. Now, she was very well-to-do because her paternal grandfather presided over the largest bank in Marblehead, Massachusetts. And she went to Elizabeth Agassiz School for Girls in Cambridge. Now, during the Civil War, she volunteered with the Sanitary League. And it's kind of like a proto-Red Cross. Right. And they staffed field hospitals, raised money, and provided supplies. And they also educated the military and government officials on health and sanitation. And women who volunteered would organize supplies and work as nurses. She did go to Washington at the end of the Civil War to see the parade, as well as the blood-soaked pillow of Lincoln, and to see the trial of the conspirators. Now that's another episode. Yes, it is. Now she was traveling abroad after the Civil War in London, and she met Henry Adams at a legation dinner. So Henry Adams was... Like I said, the great-great-grandson of John Adams. He was born February 16th of 1838, also in Boston, and graduated Harvard in 1858. In 1860, his father, then a member of the United States Congress, asked Henry to be his private secretary, which is kind of a family tradition between father and son, as John Quincy Adams was John Adams' secretary. Now, President Lincoln eventually appointed Charles Francis Adams his father, as ambassador to the United Kingdom, and Henry went with him as secretary. Henry said, while in London is when he meets Clover, and he describes her with writing to his brother that it was difficult to resist the fascination of a clever woman who chooses to be loved, and that she takes malicious pleasure in shocking the prejudices of the wise and the good. She sounds like my kind of girl. Maybe that's why I like her. (laughs) So they were back in the U.S. by 1868. Now, Clover and her father were living at their home in Beverly, Massachusetts, until she married Henry, which happened in Boston in 1872. And they continued to live in Boston while Henry taught at Harvard. He was a professor of medieval history, because this story is not interesting enough. But in 1877, he and Clover moved to Washington, D.C., and they moved into their residence on the Lafayette Square in 1880 and this is also the site of the famous cosmo club cosmos club and it was just sort of a tete-a-tete just a little place for people to go and hang out and exchange intellectual ideas because there was no tv or internet and our souls were still clean and pure so adam's always the historian the writer observer of society and government he began his nine volume work the history of the united states during the administrations of jefferson and madison I think it's funny that he skipped Adams. <laughs> I think he thought it was gauche. I don't know. Everyone thought- skips Adams. Are you kidding me? <laughs> hey, that HBO miniseries was excellent. You know what they gave Adams? They gave him Paul Giamatti and they were like, here, <laughs> this is what you get. It was perfect casting. It really was good. But he wrote novels, he wrote biographies. His social circles included John Hay. That is Lincoln's personal secretary and later secretary of state. Quite Quite the statesman, that one. Clarence King. Henry James. Oh, that's Golden Bowl. That's Old Willie's brother. And Oliver Wendell Holmes. As, oh, a Supreme Court justice to boot. That's true. But she was known as a clever and outspoken woman and was cited as the inspiration for writer Henry James's Daisy Miller and The Portrait of a Lady. James remarked that Clover was a regular Voltaire in petticoats because, of course, he did. He is the sassiest man. Sassy. <laughs> Now, she took up photography in 1883, and she was very talented, and her work was very widely admired. 
and she did her own developing. She took up the hobby at 40 years old. Her autodidactism belies the sophistication of her work, which displays a keen eye for lighting and framing. She did photograph Oliver Wendell Holmes and Secretary of State William Evans and some of the more famous Adams family members and family pets because fun. Of course. And not only did she photograph family pets, she dressed them up and set them at tea parties. I love it. (laughs) She did still lifes of interior and exterior scenes and landscapes in Washington, Maryland, the Adams family home in Quincy, and at Beverly Farms, Massachusetts, where her family lived. And she did a lot of candid work as well. It's very interesting. She produced a great body of work that really does kind of grant us a window into the domestic sphere at the time. But she was very interested in the actual process of photography. She kept meticulous chronological notes as she was developing photos. And she would list the photographs and comment on exposures and lighting and all sorts of very technical things. In a letter to her father, she actually wrote, It is science, pure and simple. By all accounts, they were very happy for 12 years. Henry published two novels, Esther and Democracy, an American novel. Now, there's something interesting about Democracy. In general? As a, as a work, as a work of fiction. It was published anonymously. It must have been scandalous. Well, it was, it was kind of allegorical, I guess. It was, uh, it was primary colors before it was cool. Oh. It focused on the fictional Washington politics and became an international bestseller. It was only attributed to Henry after his death by his publisher, but many think that Clover may have been the author. It's very interesting. And there was much speculation that it was either one of the Adamses or maybe one of the Five of Hearts. The Five of Hearts? Well, it was an exclusive group in Washington, you understand. Were there five people? There were five people, and they all had hearts. Assumingly. <laughs> This included Henry and Clover and Clara and John Hay and Clarence King, who was head of the Geological Survey. But Henry James noted in a story inspired by the Adamses that their circle left out on the whole more people than it took in. The Adamses did not serve for boars, partly, as Adams told John Hay, because they themselves were, quote, bored to death with ourselves. At long intervals, we chirp feebly to each other and then sleep and dream sad dreams. He sounds like a typical melancholy writer. Oh, yeah. Also going to say his birthday is very close to mine, and I bet we have very similar temperaments. Your humors and your signs align. Right. And she grew up a Unitarian, Clover did, but became quite skeptical of all this God nonsense later in life. She was always very loyal to Emersonian naturalism and never lost her social conscience. She was very concerned with the plight of Native Americans, and she was involved in her family's work with the Freedmen's Bureau, providing education for freed slaves. She spent her life saying that she wanted to overcome her prejudices, but often she expressed very contradictory preferences. And this can be seen in things like her being very fond of Italians, but really disliking Germans. Because of the beer, mostly, I think. I Maybe. Don't know. Maybe she's had a bad experience. <laughs> I don't know. And she would also, like, really, really like Spanish people, would, but would be like, there's no corruption in Spain. Like, pre-Spanish Civil War. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Yeah. Now, she studied Greek and Portuguese and backed her sister's efforts to establish the Harvard Annex, which would become Radcliffe, which is big effing deal. She was also, throughout her life, very, very attached to her father, Now, remember, William Hooper did raise the three children 
on his own after the death of his wife, Ellen. But during their first long separation on her honeymoon, they were traveling along the Nile. Jealous. I know. What a cool honeymoon. Best honeymoon ever. And she had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And it was kind of because she was away from her father and her place and her... For the first time. For the first time. But they returned to Boston with 25 crates of china, glass, paintings, linen, and mementos. They were very much living that Gilded Age dream. She would write her father, weekly at least, to inform him about political gossip and Washington society, and she always had a very keen sense of humor. She referred to President Chester A. Arthur as our chucklehead sovereign. I'm going to agree with her. (laughs) He's such a chucklehead. He looks like a camembert. With his sideburns. They're beyond sideburns. They take it to a new level. They're half face burns. (laughs) In 1885, her father became very ill, and she decided that it was her responsibility to go take care of him. She had nursing experience, after all, and she spent his last six six weeks caring for him and watching him deteriorate. Right. Henry Adams wrote, The poor old doctor is fading away like a stoic, without a murmur or complaint. I wish we all might face death as coolly and sensibly, but the process is harsh and slow. And he did die on April 13th of 1895. And Marion wrote that her father went to sleep like a tired traveler. The idea that she was now an orphan and that she had no children greatly affected her. Adam said about her state after this that she was unwell and shows no fancy for mending as I could wish. Now Henry's older brother noted that Clover became lethargic and depressed, saying... She sat there pale and careworn, never smiling, hardly making an effort to answer me. The very picture of physical weakness and mental depression. Physically and mentally, she was during the months preceding her death an object for the most profound compassion. So within a few years, Adams, Henry Adams, would see his wife, both of his parents, his sister and brother-in-law all pass away. He really dove into a severe amount of grief and depression from all of this death surrounding him. He described himself as unsteady. He wrote to a friend, life could have no experience so crushing. This wretched bundle of nerves, which we call mind, gives me no let up. All my energy is turned now to the task of endurance, he wrote to Oliver Wendell Holmes. He also wrote, my table was instantly covered with messages from men and women whose own hearts were still aching with the same wounds and who received me into their sad fraternity. After her death, Henry, struck with grief, destroyed her photos. The photos of her. Right. There's still some of her photos around. And there's, but there's only one photo of her, and it's taken from far back. Her on a hearse, with her bonnet, covering most of her face. And there is another supposed photo in which her face is completely obscured by a hat. Yeah, she... she was really worried about her looks from the writing and mm-hmm. from photographs. It was like a source of insecurity for her. Yeah, definitely. It's sad. But John Hay wrote to Henry after Clover's death. Is it any consolation to remember her as she was that bright intrepid spirit, that keen, fine intellect, that lofty scorn for all that was mean, that social charm, which made your house such a one as Washington never knew before and made hundreds of people love her as much as they admired her. So after Clover's suicide, Adams really began to shut himself away. He knew that his life had been split in two. He wrote to John Hay, saying the first feelings of desperation. I shall come out all right from this. 
what shall I call it, hell. But sadly enough, papers began to question her character. The Washington critic said, The late Miss Henry Adams had a reputation of saying bitter things to men in measures, and of her fellow women too, was generally distrusted and failed to become socially popular. People are terrible. Yeah, they were saying these are signs of her moral frailty. This, like, oh my god, this makes me so angry. It makes me angry because we haven't evolved much beyond it. Not really. And it makes me angry because she was so careful and so warm so nurturing of social relationships and it seems like she really did just form her own family in Washington and really worked at creating an, a network of people that supported her like it seems like she did kind of everything right until she couldn't anymore right Henry James said poor Miss Adams found the other day the solution of the knot of existence <sighs> Henry. and there's been much speculation on why why did she choose this path? Well, it's interesting because it kind of depends on who you ask. It really does, as all stories do. Without a doubt, no matter what the answer is, some of it has to do with her father, with the utter grief that she was struck with. When her father, who she was very close with, passed away and she saw him slowly, slowly pass away. I'm sure there's a certain amount of helplessness that that made her feel. And I'm sure that there was... An aching finality and loneliness that it brought about. But there's probably more to the story than just that. In addition to the unfortunate circumstances of her father's death and the strain that it put on her mentally, it's important to realize that her family had a pretty profound history of mental illness. And that was just not understood at the time. But she had also spent her childhood accompanying her father when he would go and do charitable visits at lunatic asylums. Right, he was on the board of one of these new lunatic asylums that we just talked about. Mmm, lovely. But she and her sister Ellen would go with him. And in their letters, they show that they really felt very vulnerable and feared confinement in these institutions. And Clover's letters in particular make it very clear that she regarded suicide as a preferable path to commitment in one of these institutions or becoming a burden on her family members. So as a child, Clover was present when her aunt, Susan Sturgis Bigelow, took arsenic and ended her own life as well as that of her unborn child. That just must have been traumatizing. She was present at her aunt's suicide at a very young age. Her sister Ellen, who was grieving after her husband died, walked into the path of an oncoming train. And her brother, Edward, suffered a six-week nervous breakdown as a result of this tragedy. And in 1901, he threw himself from the third floor of a building and died two months later of pneumonia in an asylum. So either they're cursed or there's a strong propensity towards serious depression in their family. Yeah, I'm going to go with that instead of the curse. Yeah. But no, right, there is a strong history of suicide and mental illness and she had a first-hand account of what these asylums really looked like. And also a first-hand experience with suicide. Right. And like seeing that that yeah. happened and then it was over and that her aunt never went to that place compared to those places had to be a thing she processed. Right. And of course, it's one of those things where it's not the right answer. No. But... But seeing something like that at such a formative period in her life probably influenced her thinking on the two as comparable or housed in the same mental space, I guess. When Henry Adams' brother, Charles, learned that he was planning to propose to that Clover Hooper, he wrote, Heavens no! 
They're all crazy as coots. She'll kill herself just like her aunt. And Henry wrote to his brother Brooks later, I know better than anyone the risk I run, but I have weighed them carefully and I accept them. It's kind of interesting that he didn't know. He kind of knew what he was getting himself into in a way. You know, like he knew depression's probably a problem. It's just something we're going to have to deal with, but I'm prepared for it. And it's not something that just came out of the woodworks. Or that he was blind to, that he chose to avert his eyes from. Yeah, he acknowledged it and said, we're going to work on it. We're going to deal with it. Which is very progressive for the time. Right. I hate when people say he was a misogynist dick. I don't think he was any more of a misogynist than anyone else at that time. He definitely had some antiquated ideas about femininity and women's capacity for learning. But he grew. I think she helped change his mind. And can you ask for more than that? No, you really can't. He's the embodiment of American privilege. Like, really? (laughs) He learned. But anyway. But as long as we're bashing Henry Adams, as long as we're taking a moment to look at the feminist critique of what he did to her, because that is what you will find in a lot of writing on this topic, is he made her commit suicide because he didn't love her enough. Yeah. It's great. It's really great. We, We must talk about the affair. The affair feel it's overblown it is it so is but it's interesting so they were unable to have children and this made clover very unhappy she supposedly said to her cousin in lothrop if any woman says to you that she doesn't want children it isn't true all women want children and she was also a very doting aunt she had five nieces and she would write them stories and build them playhouses and take care of them and henry always had toys for the girls when they came over So knowing how Clover felt about children, the fact that Lizzie Sherman was three months pregnant when she went to visit her right before her suicide has always been cited as a complicating factor, contributing factor, whatever you want to label it. Now, who was Lizzie Sherman? Harlot. Uh, Well, she was William Sherman's niece. You know, Sherman. Sherman's March. Burned everything down. yeah. Yeah, that one. Maybe also a little bit of a harlot, but whatever. Moving on. She was in Washington with her husband who was like 20 years older than she was and a widower and she'd kind of been married off to him. But he was a senator from Pennsylvania who apparently had a little bit of the drinky problems. I bet he saw the statues dance. I bet he did too, with any luck. I bet he danced with the statues. Loving this mental image. I bet it's Chester A. Arthur in my mind. Oh, him too. Yes, definitely. Now they moved into Lafayette Square, very near the Adamses. And Henry was very infatuated with Lizzie, or at least fascinated by her, curious about her. And he began a 35-year correspondence with her in May of 1883. Well, that's a long time. Right. But a lot of people say it is sort of an example of courtly love. Like, there's not a lot of indication that there was ever anything physical between the two of them i.e. they were not speculating that this baby belonged to Henry Adams. Right. It was kind of, they were just sexting a little. It was old-fashioned sexting, I think. I really do. Henry James described the affair between Henry and Lizzie, Henry Adams and Lizzie, (laughs) as this. One of the longest and oddest American liaisons I have ever known. Women have been hanged for less, and yet men have been, too, I judge, rewarded with more. And I feel like this is overblown. I feel like... Maybe they met up once. Maybe there was a little tryst at the most, you know? I mean, it was probably like ungloved pinkies touching on the lanai. Like, I mean, I just don't think there was anything that salacious happening. This man is so bookish. He's basically 
a nine volume set on the presidencies of Madison and Jefferson, but not Adams. And I think that one thing that kind of supports the theory that they were just sort of a curious set of friends, really confidants, is the fact that on Christmas Day, after Clover's death, he sent Lizzie one of Clover's favorite pieces of jewelry, requesting that she sometimes wear it to remind you of her. That is a very interesting quote that I just can't fully wrap my mind around. It makes sense to me in a weird way. It's like honoring the thing that is keeping you apart, remembering the reason you can't be together, kind of, this is more important, this was my life's work kind of thing. I don't know. I like. I'm, but there's like a positivity to it, which is great. I mean, they had an open relationship. <laughs> we say that about everybody. Maybe know, they did. Right? <laughs> Marsden's ruined us forever. It's very true. So Henry Adams did go on to write an autobiography, The Education of Henry Adams. In third person. In third person. Now, he left blank the period of his marriage to Clover to her death and entitled the next chapter, 20 Years After. Now, Thornton Wilder once said, It's possible to make books of a certain fascination if you scrupulously leave out the essential. And Mr. Adams has done just that. Well, and it wasn't published till after his death. It was sent around to his friends, which I think is really interesting. Right. Now, Adams did tell a friend that the great calamities in life leave one speechless. And three years after Clover died, he wrote that he was still sad, sad, sad. Now, he burned some of the diaries he kept during their marriage. And if there was maybe a suicide note, chances are it was burned as well. He did a lot of burning. And he said, wisdom is silence. It's like he really absorbed that experience and completely internalized it. He really did. And so when the book was published posthumously... It did win a Pulitzer in 1919. Now, in it, he did speak about the death of some other people in his life, including his sister from Lockjaw. He wrote that he knew by heart the thousand commonplaces of religion and poetry about human mortality intended to deaden one's sense and veil the horror. Impressions like these are not reasoned or cataloged in the mind. They are felt as part of violent emotion, and the mind that feels them is a different one from that which reasons it is thought of a different power and a different person jesus he also said the idea of any personal deity could find pleasure or profit in torturing a poor woman could not be held for a moment god might be as the church said a substance but he could not be a person so he internalized it a little bit skosh so following Clover's death, like we say, he was very reclusive and he would still write to his friends and, you know, work on his autobiography, but he just usually refused to discuss her. Now, on April 5th of 1883, Henry wrote to a friend, my kind friend, I should have written to you before, but have put it off day to day as a thing that could better wait till I have found out what had happened to me and where I was. Even now, I cannot quite get rid of the feeling that Clover must sooner or later come back that I had better wait for her to decide everything for me. At last, the impression is growing weaker, and I am able to think and act without much sense of the old dependence that makes me like a child, amusing myself from day to day without a plan or an interest that grown people commonly affect to have. The rattlesnake has been my baby rattle since it arrived. Everyone has thought it an alligator, and our Florida lands have has fallen visibly, whenever I explain that this is my stock and that I grazed thousands of them. I must respect proprieties and prejudices, 
if I cared a future fig for society or its opinions or for property or impropriety or had any fancy for shocking or pleasing anybody, I should really see a career in store. The only advice I have for you is to get all the fun you can out of life. The only moments of the past I regret are those when I was not actively happy. As one cannot always be actively blissful, one must be content. But it a poor substitute at best, and it makes no impression on the memory. My only wonder is whether I could have managed to get more out of the 12 years than we got. And if we rarely succeeded in being as happy as was possible, I have no more to say. The world may come and the world may go, but no power, yet known on earth or heaven, can annihilate the happiness of the past. I had my 12 years and I have them still. So that surfaced like two years ago. And it kind of undoes the narrative that he just walled it off and didn't feel it. Yeah, and some people will say that him leaving out their life together in his biography is a sign of guilt. Maybe it is. I think guilt's one of the emotions you feel after a suicide. I, I think that that is a very particular effect of suicide on the living. Yeah, but guilt that, I guess, okay, I see your point. I see your point, but I feel like people are saying that guilt that he caused it. And guilt definitely is an emotion that comes up in these kind of situations. But I feel like it's more the guilt of grief. It is. It's tangled up with anger. So it should almost be one of the stages of grief. And especially, especially if someone close to you kills themselves. I mean, it just, it affects you in a very different way. It was an active decision. And you will always imagine that you had more influence than you did. And wish you would exercise it more carefully. I mean, I may be projecting and talking out of school or a number of things, but I don't think that that is a, a stretch. But I also think that for, for Henry, Clover's death was so personal. It defined him in a way. And it would be cheap to allow it to define the story of his life in a literal way on the page when it made him who he was and gave him the perspective that he had. I can imagine leaving things out of my autobiography. Just imagine the pain it would be in writing that. Self-flagellation of the worst kind. Truly. So he did eventually kind of come out of his hiding. He also began to turn away from his family's Unitarian church. In June of 1886, he joined the artist John Lafarge, describing himself as a woebegone pagan searching for nirvana. And they went off to Japan. Fun! Road trip, buddy movie, let's do it. Now, Adam's circle of artists and writer friends began to question these Christian certainties of the time. They just didn't hold up when looking at the violence of the Civil War, the changes in American industrialization, Darwin's theories of evolution. Everything was so in question at this time. And to him, the ideas of Nirvana and Buddhism really took a strong hold. He saw... Nirvana is this complete release from the cycles of life and death that he kept witnessing. They stayed there for five months. They visited towns and temples. They saw the giant Buddha of Kamakura and photographed it. And you can see that. And read about Buddhism and Taoism. And he really took a lot of these ideas to heart. And when he, it helped him kind of move along. It helped him deal with some of these ideas. And whenever he returned to the United States, he was prepared to establish a memorial for Clover. Maybe that was his way of confronting it, and maybe that's all he needed to say about it. He said about this memorial that they must come to revere its sheer mystery, cloaked in aura of beauty in the cemetery, 
where an awe of nature and art can spur meditation on universal questions. He hoped for suggestions of nobility, serenity, order, grief. He called it my Buddha in his diary. He later called it the peace of God. And he called upon one of the greatest American sculptors of the time to create his Buddha, Augustus Saint-Gaudin. Clover had always admired the work of Augustus Saint-Gaudin, so it's very fitting that he be tapped to construct this memorial for her. Now, of all the things there are to know about this man, the most important thing one can know about him is that he is a meticulous, exacting perfectionist. I'm sure Clover admired that as well, as you can see in her. Like, meticulous note-keeping and learning is brand-new thing, photography. Saint-Gaudin said, It is the way the thing is done that makes it right or wrong. That is the only creed I have in art. Now let us return to the work of C. Lewis Hind, who wrote a soaring, soaring account of Saint-Gaudin's life and work. He's the one, you will remember, that was complaining about the statuary hall. But of Gaudin, he writes, He left the world a little better than he found it. With these true and temperate words, the voice of the speaker ceased. There was no applause, as this solemn assembly in honor of the memory of the first American sculptor of genius was in the nature of a sacred rite. But the hush of sympathetic appreciation that stilled all the trivial moments of the large audience was more eloquent than any quick manifestation of approval. We felt that the sobriety and taste of the peroration as the whole memorial oration by Mr. McLaren, mayor of New York City, was in harmony with the life work of Augustus St. Gaudin. This lay service of gratitude for the gift of a significant life was held on the 29th of February, 1908, in the city of New York, where St. Gaudin lived and worked for so many years, where so many of his friends remain, which he had known so well, and upon which he left the impressive, enduring beauty and exemplary achievement. His Sherman and his Farrago rise nobly above the swirl of New York, standards to which others must strive to attain, the high watermark for modern sculpture. See, he's a fan. But let's go back. Sangledown was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1848, but he immigrated to the United States when he was under a year old. He's the son of a shoemaker. His father was French and his mother was Irish. And at the age of 13, he began to apprentice to a cameo cutter. Cameos are tiny little relief portraits. Tons of detail, and the good ones especially. In his. Now, he studied drawing at night at Cooper Union and the National Academy of Design and moved to Europe when he was just 19 years old. And he was the first American to be accepted into École des Beaux-Arts. Which is a famous art school in Paris, which a lot of American artists did. You know, like all of the artists that built and designed the White City. In Chicago for the World's Fair, and then moved over to D.C. to work on all of the buildings and the inside murals and works within there, especially in the Library of Congress. But he was the first. He was the first to do a lot of things. And he supported himself by continuing to work part-time as a cameo cutter during his stay at Beaux-Arts. But he moved from Paris to Rome at the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. Good calm. In Europe, he met a woman named Augusta Homer, well, that was meant to be. Augusta and Augustus. And she was a painter from Boston, and they fell in love. Now, there were problems. He was a Catholic. She was a Calvinist. Oh, no. Caused a bit of friction. But she settled it with her parents by saying, Augustus 
is neither French nor Irish, which I guess is tantamount to Catholic. He is an American. Lovely sentiment. Now, he would not promote marriage until he had a commission that could support them. And this came with his first major commission, Admiral Farragut. Uh, one of the heroes of the Battle of New Orleans. One of, though, not the, because clearly Andrew Jackson needs a statue in the middle of Jackson Square, or what would we look at? Hey, there's a good idea for a replacement. Ha. I think we should just have Jean Lafitte. <laughs> it would make a lot more sense. He never did anything bad or wrong. He embraced it. <laughs> he owned it, you're right. Maybe we just need Bowie there with a knife and anger. And he got this commission in 1881, and it was to be placed in New York City. So Gus and Gussie, as their friends called them, got married. Side note, he did become involved with a woman. See, everyone was doing that. Everyone was doing it. Her real name, and I shit you not, was Albertina Hooligan. Oh, if this had gotten out in the papers, the headlines would have been fantastic. Albertina Hooligan. But she went by David O'Clark. Good choice. Now, they had a son together, and they named him Louis after Augustus's brother, and he did uh, provide for them, even if he never officially recognized him, and his son would eventually go on to attend MIT and get a degree in engineering, so Louis did all right. But the most important thing to know about Davida is that she was his model for his very famous sculpture, Diana. Which was originally placed on top of Madison Square Garden. Now, it's one of the few nude sculptures he ever did, and he believed that Davida was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. And he memorialized her in this sculpture and gilded it. So he was a little bit fixated. No symbolism there. Right? Only nude sculpture, completely gilded. Go on. But he and Gussie survived that however they did. Whether she was cool with it or they had to work through it, we don't know. Records don't say. Everyone had an open marriage. (laughs) Back in the day, it was very different. But they returned to America... After, you know, meeting in Paris and by happenstance, there was this lawyer named Charles Beeman who owned his property in New Hampshire. And he suggested that Gus and Gussie rent his property in New Hampshire for the summer. And he sold it by telling Gus, who had just received his commission for the standing Lincoln in Chicago, that he was sure that he could find lots of, quote, Lincoln shaped men in New Hampshire. I bet this guy was a great lawyer. (laughs) Now, Gussie loved the idea. She was totally into the idea of moving to the country and thought it just sounded lovely. Pastoral life. Mm Mm-hmm. However, Gus was not so sure. He said that he expected to find skeletons hanging in the windows and blowing in the wind. So he was dealing with much more of a haunted mansion vibe. However, they went there and he did find a Lincoln-shaped man. Thankfully. But the skeletons. No skeletons. Damn. And the man's name was Langdon Morse, and you can see photos of him. He's quite Lincoln-shaped. And he began work on the Lincoln sculpture, and he converted a barn into a studio. It was very hipster, and decided the place was pretty all right. Yeah, and that statue is is incredible. Incredible statue, and very famous. Lincoln's standing with the chair behind him, and the chair always representing the scholar. scholar. So he is the scholar, but he's also standing. To indicate that he's a leader. Exactly. And that he's left his chair. So Goodin would always use his kind of classical ideas. And motifs and symbols. He would incorporate these very incredibly traditional elements into his work that had kind of been abandoned for a while, but that kind of tied his work more to 
classical Renaissance sculpture or mythological themes. But they were still so modern at the time. And human. Very human. They're modern now. Oh, no, yeah. But, I mean, he was developing a new style. He was combining this fanatical realism with this mythological, classical influence and sort of developing a very early form of surrealism, if you will pardon the use of such a term. I think art people would hit me in the head with a hammer if they heard me say that. But anyway. So his standing Lincoln is glorious. And our buddy, his fan, of course, had things to say. Facing me towered the heroic figure of Lincoln, that consummate work wherein, for the first time in history, the frock coat had been forced to garb a personality with beauty and romance. It is idle to say that it is impossible for a sculptor to fail when the subject is Lincoln. Some have failed, others have been successful in varying degrees, but only St. Gaudin has caught the very idea of the national and beloved hero, the rugged power and sweetness of the face, the emotional angularities of the long body, and the sense of will controlled by simple nobility of character. Does he not seem to be waiting to utter the words that are inscribed on the pedestal? Let us have faith that right makes might, and in that faith let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. So I quite enjoy the work of his superfan, and I do think that there is something about that posture and about that selection for the pedestal that's so emblematic of the personality that we would give Lincoln as a country. I just love when a sculpture tells such a story. It absolutely does. And he's not looking out. He's not proud. He still has a great deal of humility. He's a, a little downcast. Mm-hmm. And it's in the eyes. It's a subtle little choice that didn't have to be. But it's beautiful. And like I said, the inscription resonates with that because it's like, let us dare to do our duty, ever the lawyer, as we understand it. Like, it's the careful wording. It's that all-encompassing you, like, everyone can do this. Like, if I say, as we understand it, everyone can do it. And it's that, that careful humility, that ch- double-checking and reassuring. He was such a reassuring personality, or at least we've made him that way. At least we have. <laughs> and this is one of the things that's, that's helped that myth become reality. So he created it in a barn. What better place other than a log cabin? Yes, exactly. Now he became famous for taking a very, very long time to deliver his commissions. And a prime example of this is the Shaw Memorial. St. Godin said, Conceive an idea, then stick to it. Those who hang on are the only ones who amount to anything. You can do anything you please. It's the way it's done that makes the difference. A good thing is no better for having been done quickly. Boy, did he live by that. 14 years of it. It took him 14 years to deliver the Shaw Memorial. It had been commissioned by the citizens of Boston to commemorate Colonel Robert Gould Shaw and a group of African-American men who formed the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. It was the first black volunteer regiment in the Civil War, one of them. They were all formed around the same time. But the Massachusetts 54th became very famous following the attack on Fort Wagner in South Carolina on July 18th of 1863. Now, 74 men and three officers were killed in battle, and many, many more were wounded. Among the officers who was killed was Shaw. Now, another important figure in that battle was Sergeant William H. Kearney. He was severely injured, 
that he saved the Flag's regiment from being captured by the enemy, and he was the first African-American to be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. So they were just the perfect heroes for the Union. Now, interestingly, Saint-Gaudin only wanted to include Shaw. Really? Yes. The citizens of Boston pressed him to include the infantrymen. And it's famous because it includes them. Right. One of the reasons, of course. But he was like, okay, I'll include them, but it's going to take a minute. Right, because there's numerous, numerous infantrymen. And I think they thought they would just be blank figures, just kind of like, just make one and then repeat it. Oh, no. He used 40 different models. And it's a relief. Okay, so a relief sculpture is something that purports to be two-dimensional, but isn't. So it's laid out like a painting, but the figures emerge from the background into the third dimension. However, the back surface is flat. And in this relief, you see all of the different soldiers of the regiment, and they're all at like different angles, turning their faces in different ways, kind of coming out of different perspectives. Right, and all of the feet match up with all of the bodies, and there isn't an extra arm anywhere. And he is taking a, a three-dimensional group of infantrymen, around 40 of them, and condensing them to a two-dimensional space, but having them protrude from the canvas, as it were. So this is a huge relief. It was commissioned for Boston Common. And as they were waiting, the head of the committee complained, people are grumbling for it. The city is howling for it. Most of the committee has become toothless waiting for it. But when it was finally unveiled on May 31st of 1897, 14 years after it was ordered, everyone was blown away. And it is genuinely one of the most beautiful pieces of relief sculpture I have ever seen. But on the back, there's a beautiful eagle and the following inscription. The white officers, taking life and honor in their hands, cast in their lot with the men of a despised race, unproved in war, and risked death as inciters of insurrection if taken prisoners. Besides encountering all the common perils of camp, march, and battle, the black rank and file volunteered when disaster clouded the Union caused, and served without pay for 18 months till given that of white troops, threatened enslavement if captured, and were brave in action, patient under heavy and dangerous labors, and cheerful amid hardships and privations. Together, they gave to the nation and the world undying proof that Americans of African descent possess the pride and courage and devotion of the patriot soldier. 180,000 such Americans enlisted under the Union flag. It's kind of amazing to see a Civil War monument like this. Yeah, when we grew up with Lee Circle. All right, well, it's not there anymore. Yeah, well, thanks, Mitch. <laughs> but, you know, like we said, it has all of the black soldiers in uniform, Shaw on horseback. But Godin includes Lady Victory. And, you know, with it, with all the soldiers, with Shaw on horseback, you have this, you know, allegorical female figure holding branches of laurels and poppies representing not only victory, but sleep. Oh, God. He's good. I love icons, I have to say. I do love icons. He did portraits of his friends, who included people like oh, just Robert Louis Stevenson and Cornelius Vanderbilt. No and, and John Singer Sargent and his wife Violet. Okay. That takes some serious balls. <laughs> Like, to do that portrait. Who is, like, basically the American portraitist. <sighs> Can we, I could talk about him for seven hours. You want to talk about him? Let's talk about him. No. <laughs> Let's talk about the way he uses red. Which is he doesn't. Not today. <sighs> okay. 
fine. His portrait of Robert Louis Stevenson, also a relief portrait, Jesus Christ, is massively beautiful. It shows Stevenson in bed with a cigarette, his book on his lap. It's very personal and eloquent and quiet. It also shows an intimacy, because like we talked about in our Jekyll and Hyde episode, he was a sickly guy. Right. He often would be in bed. Oh, and the inscription on that one bears the poem. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies, where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from sea, and the hunter home from the hill. This is why artists should be friends with writers. <laughs> so because he was the most popular man in the world, and he was amazing, and everyone wanted to be his friend... When the other most popular man in the world was elected president, he was on the guest list. You mean the Rough Rider? That's the one. Old T.R. Teddy Roosevelt himself invited Augustus Saint-Gaudin to his inauguration ball, which I have to say, if there was a party that I could go to back in time, it's on my list. It's on my list. (laughs) Well, we went to the bar where he recruited the Rough Riders in San Antonio. Yeah, we did. And I think I sat in this chair. You just felt it? I just felt it. Actually, it was the outlaw position. There was like a column behind it, and it was at the corner of the bar, and it was like up in the bartender's face. And I'm like, if if Teddy sat anywhere, that's it. This was it. But I think maybe at the ball, because this is the kind of guy he was, Teddy asked him if he would mind, you know, creating a coin. Sure. And so he created the double eagle $20 gold piece, which is worth roughly meh. $4,000 today. Inflation. Yeah, exactly. Now, normally men from the Department of the Treasury, engravers, would be tasked with creating the coin. And so the fact that this outsider came in and made them all look so badish, bad, <laughs> really kind of irked them. And so there was a huge controversy over the coin because it was accidentally struck without the motto in God We Trust on it. And so in conjunction with being done by an outsider, this led them to recollect them and remint them. But some of the originals do still exist. And there were some coin. Now from there, he moved into his final phase of work. And he began working on the Sherman Memorial, the Sherman Monument for Central Park. Oh my God. The great gilded hero. Of Central Park. So, fun fact, Sherman sat for that. That's crazy. He went to his house. In some accounts, it says that he sat for him 18 times. Now, in the home, there is a Sherman bust, like a clay bust, so prototype, that looks really, really rough. And I don't mean like roughly done. I mean like he looks like... Looks really hard and put up wet. Yes. He looks rough ridden. As your dad would say. And the story goes that it was the first time Sherman sat for him and he walks in and he's like, do you want to go do something about that? And Sherman's like, if I leave, I'm not coming back. It's like, okay, sit there. No, not by the fire. (laughs) No, over there. (laughs) Don't touch that. Now, he wanted this to be cast in bronze and it turned into this incredible battle to complete it. Because around the same time that he had begun work on this, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. St. Godin was. Yes. And he was very ill, and he was very insistent that it be completed. 
and his son, Homer St. Gaudin, wrote later. At the time, 1900, one cast of Sherman stood in Paris for the exposition, while a plaster duplicate had gone to the French foundry. My father, however, still dissatisfied with the result, and yet dreading another trip abroad, set up a third replica in Cornish, that's where they were, in New Hampshire, and engaged assistants in order to send his alterations to Paris, where they might be inserted in the bronze. And here, in a shed, placed around the statue to keep it out of the snow, but not out of the cold, he remodeled sections of the cloak until he enlivened it with an impossible floating movement. He modified such portions of victory as her wing and her Germanic hair at the back of her neck. He emphasized the tiny angles and stiff marks of age upon the horse to increase the nervous snap. He restudied the mane, and a fortunate suggestion of an assistant, he lifted the end of the tail, and he changed the oak branch on the base to one of pine. But the troubles with Sherman were not over. After these and other alterations, my father betrayed too great an interest in the combination of real and the ideal to let the statue escape him then. So he set up the bronze himself in the field in the back of the house, to the delight of the farmers, that he might experiment with a pedestal and supervise the application of the patina. So he's like literally dying at this point. And he's insisting that he go out to the fields. In the snow. In the snow, and there's a shed, but there's nothing else. And he's out there directing his assistants on little ticks and tisks and things to do to Sherman in order to make him look more like what he wants. And he can't let it go. Even after that, he's like, mm, "No, bring it back here. I'm gonna need that. I'm gonna need the bronze." And he sets it up in his backyard, and all the farmers come watch. And he's literally experimenting with different forms of like gold plate and gilding, and experimenting with bases, and just can't can't give up on the sculpture. Now, some of the alterations he talks about there are what give this sculpture its character and make it such a unique comment. It makes like a masterwork. It absolutely is. Now, the cloak, you'll notice. you um, If you look up pictures of the Sherman Memorial in Central Park, the way his cloak seems to move is an optical illusion that is masterful. And the horse's mane is really deftly done. But one of my favorite alterations was that change of the oak branch to the pine branch. Why is that? It's Georgia. Oh, Georgia pines. Right. Under the horse's feet. Nice. Again, I love a story. A sculpture that tells a story. And if you pay enough attention, when you're walking by these things, you'll see it. Read the plaques. <laughs> Read the plaque. Okay, so in 1900, it was exhibited at the World Exhibition. It was unveiled there, in fact, and it received a blue ribbon. And he was also awarded the French Medal of Honor in the same year. Now, you say that he was diagnosed with colon cancer, but we know why he did so well. Why he lived so long after his yeah. diagnosis. Yes. Because the Kellogg Company sent him barrels of cornflakes, which, as we know... Cures everything. Fixes all of it, and he stopped masturbating. Clearly. Yay for that. So he continued to live for 10 years after his diagnosis. During this time and before, he was passionate about teaching art students. And he would take on many students at once. And he taught at the Art Students League of New York and worked in support of the American Academy in Rome. And because we're talking about things burning down today, apparently in 1904, his studio burned. And all of his prototypes and sketches and clay sketches. Oh, and, uh, it was all, I know, it was bad. But the next year, 
was his 20th anniversary with his wife, Gussie. And in honor of their 20th anniversary, they were given a golden bowl. By Henry James? No, no, oh. no. But the citizens of Cornish, New Hampshire, where his home was, he called his estate upset after his father's hometown in France. They all got together and put on a mask on the grounds, and there were 70 costumed players in this production. And the c- tradition was continued, and you can see some of the old photos of them on the estate. And it's a huge estate. It's actually a national park today. The least visited national park in the country? New Hampshire's only national park. Now I want to go, just to be like, one more. Yes, I know, me <laughs> too. bring the kids a good four like, more. Really, more people go to LBJ's ranch than, than Appset. <laughs> I recommend LBJ's. I know, I do too, but I thought we were weird. (laughs) It's a beautiful estate, and there are these outdoor rooms that you can visit. And each of the rooms is one as he planned it, where he planted hedges in a strategic way in order to wall off his sculptures from other sculptures and provide optimal viewing experiences. And some of them have complicated architectural settings, and some of them are just standing alone. But everything is as he designed it. There's even... This pond on the land where the water between these two gilded gold figures is routinely dyed black in order to get the maximum reflection. Oh. He's a perfectionist. He's a crazy perfectionist. Now, he died in 1907, but he worked until the end. He was often carried to his studios to supervise his assistants. All in all, he created nearly 150 works of art. In the year after his death, in 1908, there was a memorial exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that collected his works from all over the world, including prototypes and drafts, and even making copies of some of his more famous works that were installed in permanent public places. And of course, you might notice that I have not mentioned the Adams Memorial. And so now we come back to the grieving Henry Adams, who has returned from his trip to Japan with thoughts of Buddhism and ready to try to kind of make amends or at least move on a little and has come to Saint-Gaudin, one of the greatest sculptors in America or the greatest sculptor in America at the time, to create his Buddha. He suggested sources such as Michelangelo and and Buddhist sculptures. He wanted the tomb to be high art. Now Saint-Gaudin immediately became interested in this idea, starting to gesture, indicating poses and Adams would say no and and no, and the way you're doing that's penseroso. And so the sculptor would make another gesture, and finally one struck Adams as corresponding with his idea. Sangodan immediately grabbed the Italian boy who was mixing clay, put him into the pose, draped a blanket over him. Now that's done, said Mr. Adams. The pose is settled. Go to Lafarge about any original ideas of Quinan. I don't want to see the statue till it's finished. Cryptic. Right? So penseroso is... A reference to Milton, who described it as the goddess of melancholy. So he didn't want it to just be a melancholic statue. Just not standard mourning art. Right. He wanted it to be beyond that. In an interview published in the Washington Evening Star about how the work was first proposed, Lafarge said, Mr. Adams described to him in a general way what he wanted, going, however, into no details, save the explanation that he wished the figure to symbolize... The acceptance, intellectually, of the inevitable. Now, so, they requested Saganaire fashion this non-denominational memorial sculpture after the images of a bodhisattva, Avalokitesvara, which is a popular Buddhist deity of compassion. It's often depicted in this feminized form. So he would often consult with Lafarge, and he wanted to merge the symbolist representation of silence 
with images of the white-robed Canaan in calm repose, seated in a rockery. Lafarge wrote on Canaan, Of all the images, the one that touches me most, partly, perhaps, because of the eternal feminine, is that of the incarnation that is called Canaan, when shown absorbed in the meditations of Nirvana. Interestingly, Saint Gaudens' first sculpture while he was living in Europe was actually called Silence, and it shows a, a hooded figure pressing a finger to their lips in the classic librarian shush. Now he wanted the sculpture to be a mystery. He wanted that air to be there. He said, to the limitations of his character, with the understanding that there shall be no such attempt and making it intelligible to the average mind, and no hint at ownership. I hand it over to St. Godin. He also said, All considerable artists make it a point of compelling the public to think for itself. Every man is his own artist before a work of art. So that's either going to be inscribed above our fireplace or tattooed on my ass. One of the two. <laughs> I just think it's beautiful. Now, Adams did refuse to see the work, and this allowed... St. Gaudin to have pretty much complete free artistic expression. The monument ended up costing $20,000 and was erected five years later. Now, one woman thought she was very lucky because she ran into John Hay and St. Gaudin as they were observing the memorial. And she asked St. Gaudin what he called the figure. He hesitated and said, I, I call it the mystery of the hereafter. Then she asked, is it not happiness? No, he said. It's beyond pain and beyond joy. Hay turned to her and said, thank you for asking. I've always wished to know. Golly. I mean, she was incredibly lucky. Let's just say, if you run into John Hay and saying good at hanging out, looking at a monument, you do stop and ask. But also, like, want to know what her life was like, that she looked at that statue and was like, happiness. <laughs> so I, I was thinking about that earlier. And I was wondering if she was referencing the statue or what he called the statue. <laughs> That's a very interesting distinction. I don't know the answer. I'm just, it was a thought. But like when I, maybe it's like one of those things where like whatever you, your disposition is, is what you see or whatever you're not. No, that's what he wanted. Right. And so for her to be like, is it happy? Like, I'm like, where are you in life? Like, what is going on with you? Because <laughs> when I looked at that thing, it did not feel happy. Now we saw... An official cast of the Adams Memorial sculpture in the Smithsonian Art Museum. At the end of the hallway. Yes. Looking at you. very ominous. Now, like I said, Jacob would not interact with the statue. And I don't mean I went up and like shook its hand, but I meant like I spent some time in front of it. She got in his lap. <laughs> I didn't. We were quickly ushered out. We were. No, we weren't. But there's this quality that this figure has that is so amorphous that it's impossible to pin down, but it exudes it with a constancy that's nearly overwhelming. It's almost like a tuning fork. Like when you strike a tuning fork and that same like like same frequency vibrates until it doesn't. It's it's striking, it's arresting, it's it's captivating. Absolutely. So the thing I noticed about the statue when I was looking at it, is if you looked at it from one angle, the eyes seem to be open. And if you look at it from another angle, the eyes seem to be closed. And this is beautifully accomplished with this little detail work he does in the lid of the eye. It's this very tiny little detail where the crease above the eye is just a little bit exaggerated so it could be a lash line. 
and the way that the cloak the over the head marries with that has to be conscious it has to be prepared and deliberate we spent five years on it i mean you're describing that it's this mysterious thing you just can't like put your finger on it and that's exactly what it's supposed to be that was the goal is to make it mysterious and make it be something that you could project your own feelings onto whether it be happiness or grief or concern and it could be any of those things and it's supposed to be an ambiguous figure it's not supposed to be male or female it's often called she but once when pressed teddy called it a she adams quickly corrected him should you allude to my bronze figure will you try to do saint godin the justice to remark that his expression was a little higher than sex can give the figure is sexless so i find that very interesting not only in reference to the statue but also in relationship to the early projections upon Henry Adams of him being the sexist, misogynist asshole. Right? He was like, no, 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 it's not her. It's not my wife. It's not a female grief. It's not a man. It's it's just a feeling. It's a little higher than sex can give. You did, really did go to Japan and get enlightened, didn't you? <laughs> and even though it quickly became a tourist attraction, it still is today, Adams really resisted any attempt to sentimentalize the memorial as a symbol of grief. And like we talked about, Sengadu used these kind of classical imagery in all of it. This is going back to a seated goddess. You know, a mature goddess. Yes. This heavy cloak, which he got the texture in it from pressing burlap into the wet clay. So it's very. it gives it a sense of humility, too. Right, and he uses like owl wings representing night and the wisdom of Athena, laurel leaves, wheat sheaves, egg and dart designs, these kind of Mediterranean ideas. And the setting for the monument was designed by Stanford White, who's a celebrated architect and was one of Adam's friends. He instructed White that the setting should have nothing to say. So it's a six-sided design, 20 feet across. Originally, it was surrounded by trees. And as you walked up, the steps you couldn't see what you were walking to and as you entered the hexagon you would see this figure there sitting staring so when the work was complete john hay wrote to henry adams who had not seen it yet because he was in tahiti the work is indescribably noble and imposing it is to my mind saint godin's masterpiece it is full of poetry and suggestion infinite wisdom past without beginning and a future to which nothing matters all embodied in this austere and beautiful face. Now, for John Hay to say that this is Saint-Gaudin's masterpiece, being a personal friend of Lincoln... Oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> it's pretty damn impressive. But it's eternity. Like, I think that's the word for it. To me, when I looked at it, it just felt like it existed only in that instant. It was completely contemporaneous to the experience you have with it. But it, it has existed forever. It knows everything. It is all the secrets of the universe. But if you look away, it's gone. It's just, it's just really, it's a magical thing. It is a magical feeling. When the statue has no name, it's called the Adams Memorial. Because it's what it is, and what else do you call it? You have to have to call it something. It's often called grief. The name is attributed to a comment made by Mark Twain. Well, he would know. Right, as we've discussed. But Mark Twain did not see grief... The way that most people did. Remember, in our Phantasms of the Living episode, we talked about Mark Twain's experiences with grief. And he definitely saw death as a release. And 
as an achievement almost. He had a very interesting view of death. And so for him to look at it and see grief, bereavement, loss and mourning probably didn't have the same connotations that it would for other people. So I think it's interesting that he called it that because grief to him was something that only the living did and not something you did for the dead, but for yourself and probably something that he felt guilty about and thought about often. And maybe that's what the statue said to him. Maybe it was. And you know, writer Alexander Walcott, when discussing the statue, didn't forget what inspired it. And he urged an end to the reticence about Clover Adams' life and suicide, saying she had merely exercised her inalienable privilege of taking her own life. But because of this, she was effaced from her husband's writing and her death was not even confronted later by biographer James Treslow Adams. The most beautiful thing ever fashioned by the hand of man on this continent marks the nameless grave of a woman who is not mentioned in her husband's biography. He went on to say, it is the ineffably tranquil bronze, the hypnotically tranquil bronze, which you will find in an evergreen thicket of cypress, holly, and pine on a slope in Rock Creek Cemetery. I have often encountered a popular disposition to call it grief, but if there be one thing indisputably certain about the utter composure of that passionless figure, it is that it is beyond grief, as it is beyond pain and all the hurt the world can do. In the more than 40 years of its standing there, it has become a recognized note in the increasing vibration of American life. Scurrying little pilgrims go to it, stay a while, and come away again. The oblivious figure challenges each and every one. Motionless, it reaches out and draws a holy circle around its bit of fragrant earth, saying, with such an imperious force as no more prelate ever commanded, Here, here is sanctuary. Adams did eventually see it and write about it in his autobiography in the third person, saying his first step on returning to Washington took him into the cemetery known as Rock Creek to see the figure which St. Godin had made for him in his absence. Naturally, every detail interested him, every line, every touch of the artist, every change of light and shade, every point of relation, every possible doubt of St. Godin's correctness of taste or feeling, so that as the spring approached, he was apt to stop there often to see what the figure had to tell him that was new. But in all that it had to say, he never once thought of questioning what it meant. He also said the interest of the figure was not its meaning, but in the response of the observer. So, you know, as we've mentioned, this sculpture that is now in Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. was copied, and there are several unauthorized copies of it. It would seem very easy to imitate. Like, oh, how hard could it be? Right? It's just a cloaked figure. It's just a seated cloak figure. But <laughs> some the devil is in the details. It's true. But it's interesting to note that the black Aggie statue had such a disturbing urban legends around it and was frequently vandalized and was this killer statue. It's where all that the Adams Memorial would do is just bring people to contemplation. Well, and almost enlighten them. It almost gives you something. It tries to, if you allow it. Or you could just run into a room full of Rococo art. It was freaky. <laughs> and people continue to go to the cemetery. And one famous American who would go there often to contemplate is Eleanor Roosevelt. She frequently retreated to the Adams Memorial in 1918 to meditate in the months after learning of the again, extramarital affairs 
of her husband, but she continued to go. On the eve of her husband's inauguration of March 1933, she returned to the gravesite with a newspaper reporter, telling her that she wanted to show her something that used to mean a very great deal to me. And the reporter described, entering the monument in silence, finally Miss Roosevelt spoke in a hushed tone, as though she were in church. It's by St. Gaudin, she said. He called it grief, but it's better known as the Adams Memorial. Henry Adams had it erected here in memory of his wife. In the old days when we lived here, I was much younger and not so very wise, and sometimes I'd be very unhappy and sorry for myself. And when I was feeling that way, if I could manage it, I'd come out here, alone, and sit and look at her. And I'd always come away somehow feeling better and stronger. I've been here many, many times. She also described his essence as a soul or being who had transcended pain and hurt to achieve serenity. Now, it's interesting to see the response that Eleanor Roosevelt had to the Adams Memorial and what brought her to it. And because this is a small world, small universe, one can't help but be fascinated by the irony that after a long legal dispute, the posh copy, Black Aggie herself, was removed from the cemetery in 1966. And for a brief time, the Smithsonian considered acquiring her, believing her to be an authorized replica. But once they found out that she was a copy, they were no longer interested. The government wanted to acquire her and put her somewhere near Lafayette Square, where the Adamses had lived. They thought it would be a fitting tribute. And where she ended up was in Dolly Madison House's courtyard. And the statue that was done in memoriam to Clover, copied, defaced, brought out of the cemetery. In the basements of the Smithsonian. And sent back to Washington, now faces the door of Henry's longtime confidant and friend, maybe lover, Lizzie Sherman. So it stares with that stare at her door. (laughs) And it brings us back to the idea of intention. So now this copy is very much attached to the space where Clover's life happened, where the things that accrued over the course of her 42 years that drove her to take her own life or activated something that was already within her. This statue is associated with that turmoil. It's forever locked in that turmoil. The other statue is a quieter place, a place that's transcended this life and gone into the next. And so it really does come back to the difference between these two statues, the reactions people have to them, the stories that surround them. It comes back to intention. And the intents between the two different statues were almost opposite. It never forces anything on you. It feels like this completely benevolent presence. It is incredibly warm. It's never been defaced. It's never been vandalized. That's true. How do you account for the difference in response. And maybe it goes back to a very simple quote by the artist himself who said, it is the way the thing is done that makes it right or wrong. That's the only creed I have in art. So this was approached on all sides with such reverence, thick contemplation and purity of intent. And you have those feelings and you know what it's about, or at least you can get a sense of it without knowing this whole story. So maybe when a posh copy appears, it's done to make a buck, to support a family, to whatever, on the back of a lie, bad promise made by a snake oil salesman. Maybe when it doesn't have this story, it's misrepresented as something that he is entitled to do. 
Maybe it's the way the thing is done that makes the difference. And by seeing the care and detail that's put into it, one can connect with it and one can feel that grief and sincerity and emotion tied to it. And one can become their own artist in front of grief. In the face of grief. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.